Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. So this morning, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and it would be really helpful. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so just keep your Bible open there, because uh, we're not going to have time to read through the whole thing, of course, but this week in your journals, you're going to be looking at Revelation 2 and 3, and in your life group, you'll be talking about it, so, so you'll be, you know processing it this week, but maybe let this morning just be the springboard for our conversation and for your personal study, okay? Um, So Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This week, Karis and I had the privilege to go visit our daughter in Miami, and we had a wonderful time down there. It was 80 degrees yesterday morning before we left, and yeah, that was really rough, yeah. So um, uh, yeah, but one of my favorite things about Miami, and this is going to sound weird, and I know it doesn't sound very masculine, but are the ducks. My daughter lives right downtown in the, I mean, in the heart of the city, and she doesn't live in a high-rise apartment building, but she's literally surrounded by a high-rise apartment building. She's right in the heart of the city, and I find the ducks to be really fascinating because they, you know, they're just you don't expect to see ducks waddling through traffic. You know, it's just, it's an odd sight. And, and there's a lot of ducks. And there's always a mama duck with her ducklings. And same was true this week. And literally a couple days ago, I'm doing my walk. And there was this mama duck with 10, 12 or so ducklings waddling behind her. And she literally stopped traffic. There's a line of cars a block and a half down the street. And the guy 12 cars down is laying on the horn because he can't see what's happening up ahead, right? It's just get, it's a, you know how city people can be, right? So uh, actually, there's not just city people. We all honk our horns. So, you know, so he's back there. He's impatient. He's got someplace to go. And here's, and I'm looking, I'm just watching this mama duck just take her ducklings waddling across the road. And I'm thinking, lady, surely there are safer places for you to raise your kids. I I don't (laughs) I mean, I can, I can find you a nice pond somewhere, you know, why are you here? And then I started thinking, you know, that's a great picture of really the Christian life. You and I as disciples of Jesus, we're following Jesus. He's leading the way. Psalms 23 says he's our good shepherd, we're his sheep. And where does Psalm 23 say he leads us? Right through the valley of the shadow of death. Dang with traffic all around and threats all around and constant obstacles and enemies dogging us every step of the way. Isn't it true? And here's one of the things that we need to come to grips with, and one of the things we're going to hear this morning, and that's this. Our obvious threats are not our biggest threats. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we have obvious threats, and sometimes we can get tripped up on those. You know, you, you see a government becoming more totalitarian. You, you see our kids in schools getting completely confused and screwed up by the educational system that we think we should trust, you know, that we should trust and you can't. And we see, we see all these different things happening around us. And, and those look like threats, but they're really not. 
They're really not. Actually, this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say to these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And I want you to remember the Smyrna church. Everybody say Smyrna. Smyrna. Everybody remember Smyrna. This is the little church that nobody ever gives much attention to. But yet, she's probably the most powerful. And you'll see why. Hang on to Smyrna. But here we come into Revelation chapter 2, and it's like Jesus has this team meeting. You know, he calls us all together, he calls his church together, and he says, okay, church, let's talk. And, And of course, Jesus has some good things to say, and he has some hard things to say. And I and I want to ask us, New River Church, are we ready to hear the hard things? Are you ready? Because but but you know, the Bible says that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. But, but an enemy does what? An enemy multiplies kisses. So it's, if somebody's kissing our butt, like that's an enemy. But it's your true friend who loves you enough to say, look, at, I know this might hurt, but here's some things that have to be dealt with. The wounds of a friend can be trusted, and Jesus is our best friend. And so here he comes, he gathers his church together, and he speaks to us. And he starts off positive, but he's got some hard things to say too. Now before we dig into this, I just want you to notice a couple of things in general in chapters 2 and 3. First of all, notice that each letter is addressed to the angel of the church in. Do you see that? Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And then chapter 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and so forth. So you say, why is that? I thought Jesus was addressing these churches. He is. But remember, an angel is a messenger. And remember last week, each church has an angel assigned to it. And so it would make sense that God would say, hey, I got a message for this church. Angel, send this message to that church. So this is what's happening. And then also notice something else. There's a, a phrase that gets repeated in each one of the letters. At the end of each letter, uh, verse cha- like chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see that? That phrase gets repeated. All seven churches hear the same thing. To the whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whenever you see that in the Bible, you see these repeated phrases, you really want to pay attention. It helps you to understand the text better. So when you look at this, you say, well, what's that saying? It tells us a couple of things about these letters. It tells us, first of all, that, that they're written to all the churches, so that the letter that he wrote to the, the church in Ephesus, that was also meant for the church in Smyrna, meant for the church in Pergamum. And the letter that he sent to the church in Pergamum, well, that was also meant for the church in Ephesus and so forth and around. It also tells us that he meant these letters not just for these seven churches, but for the church. Remember in the book of Revelation, seven always means complete. And so in a sense, these seven churches are representative of the whole church. And the problems that they faced and the issues that they dealt with, or I should say the threats that they were facing, still face us today. And then the other thing that we see in here is that it's also written to the individual. Whoever has ears to hear, that's written to to people specifically. So you see these letters are written to these seven churches. They're also written to the whole church, including us. 
and they're also written to you and me as individuals. So we need to pay attention, shouldn't we? That's what that, that's what that means. Now, let's look at them real quick. You see this next slide. We've got the list of the seven churches here, and, and here's what they're known for. You've got Ephesus, known for the, they're, they're the church who lost their first love. A lot of people have heard of that. You know, you've lost your first love. So the, Ephesus is the loveless church. And then you have Smyrna. They're the persecuted church. They're persecuted Smyrna. And then you have Pergamum. They're compromised. Compromised Pergamum. And then you have Thyatira. She's tolerant. She's tolerant Thyatira. And then you have sleepy Sardis, or basically dead is really what she amounts to. But she's sleepy, and she's dead. And he says, basically, you better st step up your game, girl. And then faithful Philadelphia is the next one. And then we have lukewarm and self-sufficient Laodicea. And a lot of people are familiar with you've lost your first love. You've probably heard that, haven't you? And then you're also probably familiar with the lukewarm passage. You're not hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. A lot of people are familiar with those two churches, but there's five other churches in the middle that we're talking to. And what I want to look at this morning is maybe rather than just picking through each specific one, I want to look at the trends. What does Jesus see when he sees us? And the first thing that Jesus sees is he sees a lot of good work being done. A lot of, a lot of work is being done. And you look at this, verse, verse, chapter 2, verse 2, I know your deeds, he says, your hard work, your perseverance. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. He says, I, I, I know what you're going through. I see it. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you live, yet you remain true, he says, so he's, he's speaking positively to these churches. Uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, he says. Uh, chapter, two, chapter 3, verse 1, I know your deeds, he says. And this was even to the dead church. This was the dead church. So even the dead church was doing something. He says, I know, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, I know your deeds. You have little strength, yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Uh, the last one, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold, but I see your deeds. The point is, Jesus looks at the church, and he sees a lot of great work going on. And, and it, if Jesus was to be standing here today and giving us this message, I think he'd say the same thing. I mean, just think about the, the missionary work that's gone on around the world. Think about the vast number of hospitals, Christian hospitals. Christian orphanages, right, that have all been started, done, work done in the name of Jesus, right? There's, there's been so many, great, so much great work stopping, trying to stop working against human trafficking and, and drug trafficking and all that stuff, all done by the church. A lot of great work has been done by the church. Programs, social programs, helping, serving in communities. You look at just what we do as a church, and we're just one small part of the whole pie, aren't we? You say, there's, there's a lot of good work being done. So Jesus would start there. Good job, church. Good work. Good work. Now, we've got some things we need to talk about. Are you ready? Brace yourself. Here comes the second thing that Jesus sees. He sees a faithful but a weary church. He sees a tired church. And this is represented by Smyrna and Philadelphia. Look at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 
to, to the church in Smyrna, he says to them, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you life as your victor victor's crown. Be, be faithful. It's going to be hard, but be faithful. And then to the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Jesus told them, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. So you have these two churches, and both of them are working hard. Both of them are under a lot of resistance, and Jesus sees them getting tired. And he says, hang on, church, hang on. To Smyrna, she's persecuted. Philadelphia is more than persecuted. Philadelphia is being slandered by those around her. You see this in the letter to Philadelphia. Jesus tells them, he says, hey, the day's going to come where they are going to bow at your feet. Philadelphia is being slandered by the people around her. Whether you're slandered or being persecuted, I mean, it's going to wear you out, isn't it? And so these churches are tired. And I wonder if Jesus looks at us and he says, you know, I appreciate your faithfulness. I see how hard you're working, but I also see that you're tired. You're weary. And the truth is, I think we are weary. I feel that, don't you? I, I feel like the last two years have really sucked a lot out of us collectively as people. And, and, and the solution is not to check out and binge on Netflix for a weekend. Like, that is not the answer. You know? Like, there are healthy answers. The solution is, let's, let's talk about, let's, let's at least admit it. I'm whooped. You know? Let's, let's put together a healthy schedule. Let's, let's figure out some periods of rest and periods of work and periods of celebration. Like, let's, let's do that. Like, see, that's a healthy rhythm, isn't it? There's things we need to do to, to, to build and to, to guard ourselves against getting weary. I can tell you, I've been a pastor 33 years now and, and grown up in the church. So I've been around church people a lot, enough to have seen enough people to just crash and burn who were great people, but they just wore out. And I've even been in church settings where almost like we, we almost celebrate burning out for Jesus. You know, I'd rather burn out for Jesus. I'm like, I don't know that there's any prizes for burning out for Jesus. I just don't. I don't see that in Scripture. It's not healthy. You know, I, I guess I... I I want to I live a, a, a full life. I want to honor Jesus for as long as he gives me, but I want to be wise with the time that he's given to me. Amen? And like I said, binging on Netflix isn't necessarily the wise way to handle weariness. Let's approach the weariness of our souls correctly. Admit it, face up to it, lean into our community, because this is part of why we're here, right, together. We're in this together. We lean on one another, create some good rhythms of rest and work, rest and work and celebration. These are all important things. So Jesus looks at the church and he says, you're faithful, but I see that weariness. And that weariness is dangerous to your soul, more dangerous to you than you realize.
The, the next thing that Jesus sees is, he sees a, this is going to get a little harder, he sees a self-sufficient but a, a more, and a morally compromised church. And, and this is the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira. In, in chapter 2, verse 13, he, Pergamum, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's got to be a tough neighborhood. <laughs> right? Uh, you live where Satan has his throne. Good news. Yet you remain true to my name. Hey, that's good. You, uh, you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So this church had a martyr. Somebody in their church, Antipas, was killed for his faith. And this whole church, instead of falling apart, what did they do? They got stronger. And Jesus goes, oh, man, that's great. Verse 14, nevertheless, I got a few things. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you've also hold, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Those dirty Nicolaitans. We'll get to that in a second. And that's, that's the church in Pergamum. What about the church in Thyatira? Well, he says to them, look at verses 19 and 20. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service, your perseverance, that you're doing now more than you were doing at first. Pretty cool. So this church is doing more than they were starting. They're, they're growing. Mm, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads, misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrifice to idols. Let's just say this, whenever Jesus, if somebody calls you Jezebel, like, that's not a good thing. Jezebel in the Bible is the epitome of evil, and she's nothing good. And it's not that this woman's name was Jezebel, but Jesus actually calls her a Jezebel, calls out the spirit that she's operating by, a Jezebel spirit. <laughs> not a good thing. So who are these people? What's going on with these two churches? What's happening? You got the Balaamites, we've got the Nicolaitans, and you got this woman named Jezebel running around. What's happening? So who's Balaam? Balaam is the prophet. A lot of people remember him. He's the guy with the talking donkey. In Numbers chapter 22 to 24, we, the kids love that story. Except there's a dark, real dark side to that story, which is that Balaam was, was hired by the king of Moab to cast a curse on the Israelites. And the good news is God stopped the curse. And when God foiled the plan to curse the Israelites, what does Balaam do? Balaam said, hey, I know another way to get them. And he advised the king of, Balaam, the king of Moab, Balak, to send out their temple prostitutes into the Israelite camp to seduce the men into sexual immorality to worship the Baal of Peor. And it worked. And as a result, like 12, 14,000 people were killed in a plague. Like it was a bad thing for Israel. So this is what Balaam did. He's encouraging sexual immorality. And then you've got the Nicolaitans. They're like, so as liberal and loosey-goosey as the Balaamites were with their morality, the Nicolaitans were uptight. They were the opposite end of the spectrum. And a lot of people don't, we don't really know, to be truthful, 100% who the Nicolaitans were. It's not totally clear, but a lot of the people think that what the Nicolaitans were doing is they were kicking people out of the church who had lit incense in the temple to Caesar. You see, at this point, the imperial cult was 
dominant on the Roman scene, the Roman imperial cult, which meant you had to worship the Caesar. Caesar was God. And they were literally building temples. And you had to go in, you had to light incense in the Caesar temple, and you had to profess Caesar is Lord. That's what they had to do. And, and there was a lot of pressure in society to do that. Because you think about it, if you're part of the guild, and the guilds are basically the, the, the tradesmen, the, the, the trades. So that's the, how you get a job. And so if you, if you don't go into the temple to Caesar and light incense and say that Caesar is Lord, you're kicked out of the guilds, which means you're unemployed, which means you're poor, destitute, broke. And so you can see that there would be a lot of temptation for people to go into the temple and light the, light the incense and say the thing and walk out and keep your job. And so you got the Nicolaitans, you can imagine how that would create some conflict within the church. You have some people saying, that's terrible wrong, don't do that. Of course, you have some people saying, hey, i got to feed my family, i got to do what i got to do. You can see the argument. The Nicolaitans are on this side going, if you did that, we're kicking you out of the church. And so they're running roughshod, they're a bull in a china closet, kicking people out of the church because they said that Caesar is Lord. So now you see these extremes, the Balaamites, they're just fooling around. You got the Nicolaitans, they're kicking people out of the church. And then you got this prophet that Jesus calls Jezebel, who is actually teaching people to commit immorality. And this is all happening inside the church. Now you know what's weird? We read them. These churches are standing strong against culture, weren't they? Some of them were even being persecuted. They were, they were standing strong against it. And yet, within their own ranks, they're tolerating immorality. They're tolerating this bad teaching. It just makes you wonder, why? Why is it easier for us to talk about society's sins than it is to talk about our own sins? Have you noticed that? I mean, and hey, you know, a little comfort for us. We're not the only ones to do it. Everybody does it. Everybody points fingers. But nobody wants to evaluate themselves. We don't want to look in-house. And you know what that does, church? It, it removes our moral authority. How can we possibly speak against, like, let's say, homosexuality when... Our own marriages in the church are wrecked as much as the world's. You understand that our divorce rate within the church, not just ours, but ours, the church capital C, our divorce rate is equal to the rest of society. You get that, right? And you understand that then we don't have the moral authority to be able to stand and address the ills of society because they look at us and go, you hypocrites. And they're right. So Jesus says, look, this is a problem in the church. We need to start holding one another accountable to a higher standard of holiness, purity, walking after the standards of Scripture, and then we can begin to address any issues out there. And Jesus sees this. He calls them out on it, you know. He calls them out on it. You know, our culture, the slide there says, our culture values tolerance, right? But you understand tolerance is not a kingdom value. 
In the kingdom, we value love. And in love, you speak the truth. Even when it hurts. Anyway, there's that third one. I told you it'd be a little harder there. So Jesus looks at this church. He sees us. He says, hey, you guys are, you know, you're doing well. You're doing this good work. But there's some stuff in-house you need to take care of. You're self-sufficient. You're morally compromised. Let's button, this, let's button some things up, church. What else does he see? Number four, he sees a busy but a cold-hearted church. A busy but a cold-hearted church. And this is Ephesus and this is Laodicea. Like I said, these are the two churches that are most familiar to people. We, we know about you've lost your first love and we know about you've gotten lukewarm. We know about those. We hear those stories. But, but nonetheless, we, we, we don't want to skip over them because these churches were doing good work, but they had grown cold. Their hearts had grown cold to Jesus. And essentially, it's the same thing, isn't it? The church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love, Jesus said to them. You've lost your first love. And the church at, 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 at Laodicea, you've gotten lukewarm. And, and the image in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone lets me in, do you see what happened? The church at Laodicea had locked Jesus out. And now he's so much so that he's got to knock on the door to get back in. So whether you've grown cold, lost your first love, or you've left Jesus out on the street, either way, you've lost Jesus. And these two churches, this is their plight. They, had, they were busy, they're doing good things, you're working hard, but you've just, well, you've shoved Jesus out. Listen, a cold-hearted church is so dangerous because it's, so, it's, it's, like, it's, it's easy to overlook. Sometimes, and that's maybe part of the danger of busyness. Part of the danger of busyness is we stop. We, we don't take the time to stop and reflect because we're just so busy moving on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And you know what? There's always work to be done. Isn't there, church? Always. I mean, I feel the need. I feel the pressure every day of needs in society, people crying for help. I see brokenness everywhere. Don't you? And, and that drives us, and it, and it should drive us to a point. But the danger of that is that we're caught up meeting the next need, serving the next issue, dealing with the next problem. We're busy, 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 and then we lose Jesus. We get so busy working for Jesus that we miss being with Jesus. And we must understand that Jesus is our first priority. This is why prayer is so essential. This is why 21 days of prayer. Because what good are we to the world if we go charging out there without Jesus? See, we need to stay connected to him. I want to ask you, friend, has your heart grown cold? Has your heart grown cold? I bet we can all remember a time in our lives where we felt the fire. You know what I mean? The fire. Man, weren't those good times? That was a good time, wasn't it? The fire. And, and I'm not trying to call us back to a feeling. 
Because that's not what returning to our first love means. It doesn't mean I'm returning to the feelings of my first love. But it means I get back to my first love, Jesus. It's a person where I fall in love with him again. Who is he? He's amazing, isn't he? That's why last Sunday, that wasn't last Sunday so good. I loved our starting in Revelation, seeing Jesus as he's revealed in Revelation. Oh, my goodness. Jesus, capture my heart. Steal it. Throw away the key. <laughs> I want to be a man driven by love for Jesus. And I don't want to find myself just working and then I miss Jesus. So what else does Jesus see in his church? He sees a busy church, but your hearts are growing cold. What else does Jesus see? Well, he sees a good-looking church, but a dead church. This is the Sardis church. Sardis, he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Isn't that hard to hear? You have a reputation. We have a reputation. Everybody looks at the church and says, look, you guys, look at you. Boy, you're so holy. And Jesus says, you're dead. A reputation. See, we, see, we worry too much. And that's maybe part of the danger of, of, of the times in which we live, right? Because we live in a social media age where everybody is their own PR expert. And, and you know what? And I got, I don't, like I said, we were just in Miami. And I, I, I love people watching. But it's not being judgmental. But it's just so funny when I watch people, you know, doing their selfie sticks. And, and everybody in social media is trying to be, everybody in Miami seems like they're trying to be an influencer. So they're all, you know, posting. It's, it's funny. Funny to watch. But, you know, but we're, all like a, we're all like our own PR expert. But you understand the danger of that? I mean, you know, you've seen people's social media stuff. And you're like, you're not that happy. <laughs> you know that. But that's what social media does. It gives me a reputation for happiness. It gives me a reputation for life. It gives me a reputation for doing good things. Meanwhile, I'm dead. There's rot inside. And Jesus looks past the reputation, looks past the surface, looks past our Facebook page, and sees our heart. And he says, and, and what does he say to the church in Sardis? He tells them, I, I love this line to them. He says, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Whoa. So he says, wake up. Wake up. You know, the greatest question that we need to ask is not how do we look to the world, but how do we look to Jesus? Isn't there a fine line that we walk between, um, you know, fitting in like with Manchester, fitting in with the place where we live, and, and getting along with people in this area, right? There's a, there's, there is that. But we don't want to cross the line to where we're people-pleasing and fail to please Jesus. Because ultimately, that's our greater question. Not what do I look to them, but what do I look to Jesus? And I find this one to be the hardest one of all, because how do I know if I'm dead? I don't feel dead. 
And so this one requires a lot of introspection, some careful prayer. Jesus, could you reveal to me, you know, like that old psalm says, it says, uh, search my heart, O God, try me, test my anxious thoughts, see if there's any unclean way within me, God, right? Like show, shine the light, show me, God, where the dead spots are because they need, uh, you know, I, I, I need you to show them to me because otherwise I just can't see them on my own. And then, so you, see, so you see these churches, so what do we have? What does Jesus see? What does Jesus see when he looks at his church? He sees, he sees Ephesus had grown cold-hearted. He sees Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're, they're under the gun and they're tempted to give up. He sees Pergamum, and she's not confronting her own in-house sins. He sees Thyatira, and she's being tolerant of really bad teaching. He sees Sardis getting sleepy and essentially dead, in grave danger of being dead. And he sees Laodicea, who's self-sufficient, and she's got everything going for her, but she had locked Jesus out. Are these potential problems for the modern church? Yeah, they sure are. You say, well, what's the answer? What's the, what's the solution? The solution is found, I believe, in the Smyrna church. Little Smyrna church. We see Smyrna in chapter 2. She's the second church, verses 8 through 12, 8 through 11. It's only three verses. Just a few little verses about this church, Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, the name of Smyrna means bitter. And without a doubt, Smyrna was the church under the greatest persecution. And, and you notice Smyrna is the only church that Jesus doesn't really have any words of correction for. You notice that? You look through all the other churches, Jesus had something for them. But Smyrna, it was just encouragement. It was like, hang in there, hang in there. That's really the heart of his message to Smyrna. Nothing, isn't that interesting? And yet she's the one church that was under the greatest heat, and maybe that's why. See, Jesus afflicts the comfortable, and he comforts the afflicted. Smyrna's afflicted, and he comforts her. The other churches, a little more comfortable, and Jesus had to put some fire under them. But guess what? 2,000 years later, guess which of the seven churches is the only church still serving Jesus? The Smyrna church. Not the church that you would expect. Philadelphia is the big church. They're faithful. They're gone. Ephesus, Ephesus was famous in the Bible. Like we have the letter to the Ephesians. We have First and Second Timothy. He was the pastor of the Ephesus church. Paul started Ephesus. It's in the book of Acts. Like the Ephesus church was a famous church in the first century. Gone. They didn't make it. The only church still existing to this day. Now, the name of the town has changed. It's no longer Smyrna. It's now Izmir, Turkey. And this little town, Smyrna, in the last 2,000 years, has undergone a tumultuous history. Government turnovers, hostile takeovers, foreign enemies coming in. Over and over and over again, from the Turks, the Ottomans, the last number of several hundred years, she's been under Muslim rule, not always a friendly environment. And yet this church in Smyrna, now Izmir, continues to serve Jesus, to serve her community, 
2,000 years later. Do you think maybe we could learn something from her? I think so. To me, it says this. It screams a big message. It says that, that, that persecution, that's not our problem. That's what that says. Hostile government environment, totalitarianism, that's not our problem, church. We do really well under persecution. <laughs> our problem is comfort. That's the thing we need to watch out for. Our own wealth, our own comfort. Listen, our wealth and our comfort are a blessing, and I'm not at all minimizing them, and we can thank you, Jesus, for that. I really am. I mean that. I'm grateful for it. But we must understand the dangers inherent with it. We need to see how dangerous it actually is to our spiritual health as a church and our witness as a church. See, of, of all these churches, see, so the lesson to us is this. If you're comfortable, wake up. If you're struggling, hang on. If you're hanging on, be encouraged. Your victory is won. Our greatest threat, as I said here in the slide, is not the government. It's not even, I mean, if you think about it, the Bible tells us that not even the gates of hell can stand against the church. So if not even the gates of hell are a threat to the church, what really is a threat? No, our greatest threat is internal, not external. And I, I like to say this, if, the, you know, if I was going to give the devil advice, I'd say just leave the church alone. If the devil was really smart, he would just leave the church alone. Because we'll, event, we'll eventually just ruin ourselves. We get fat, lazy, comfortable, you know, insular. I mean, of course, he's not that smart, so he persecutes the church, and it ends up just growing the church. <laughs> you would think he'd learn his lesson after 2,000 years. He doesn't. But, friends, we need to ask ourselves some questions then. Have we fallen asleep? Has our comfort, has our wealth lulled us to sleep? Have, have we stopped pushing forward? Stopped advancing the kingdom forward? going against the gates of hell? Have we gotten lazy in prayer, grown lazy in our service, lazy in our witness? See, if we were dead, would we even know it if we were dead? We, you know, if the Holy Spirit were to leave the church, would we know it? See, I guess, what, what makes a church, you know? And, and we think about that. I mean, what makes a local church? And a lot of people would answer, well, what makes a local church is you're a community of believers, you love Jesus, you know, you're, you're committed to the word of God, uh, you uh, are committed to fulfilling the great commission to make disciples. Like, you would say, this is what makes a local church. And, and all of those are, are true, they're, they're good, they're all right, but really what makes a local church is the Holy Spirit. If you, if you think about it, we were, if you go back to the Gospels and then the beginning of the book of Acts, you know, we were a group of people who loved Jesus. We were a pretty tight community. We were disciples of Jesus. Um, we were serving people, even doing miracles. It wasn't until the baptism of the Spirit on Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 2, that the church was birthed. See? 
I would propose to you that what makes a local church, what makes us is the Holy Spirit. It's his movement in us. It's his working through us. That's what makes the local church. That's what, that's what makes us more than just a community-minded volunteer organization. <laughs> you know, is the Holy Spirit, his presence. Like, he's what makes us alive. And without him, we're dead. Therefore, it's really important for us to constantly be conscientious of our dependence on the Holy Spirit and whether or not we're grieving the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit, but to walk in, in lockstep with the Holy Spirit because he is what makes us a church. And I think he is the reason why the Smyrna church still exists because the Smyrna church has never had it easy. Never in her 2,000 years. Never had it easy. She's always had to rely upon the Holy Spirit. She's always had to lean on Jesus. She's always had to do that. And as a result, she continues to this very day. I've put it on my bucket list officially. I want to go to Izmir, Turkey, and I want to sit in on one of those church services one of these days. <laughs> Don't you? I want to just see that congregation, you know? Man, just kind of sit there and soak it in. Yes, yes. So what does Jesus want us to do? He uses this word to all the churches, <clears throat> to all the churches, um, except Smyrna. And I'm looking at this double-checking myself, but I think to all the churches except Smyrna, Jesus tells them to do this, repent. Repent. And friends, repentance is not a bad thing. We think of it as a bad thing. It's not. When, when you hear the word repent, repentance is always an invitation back into the fullness of life in Christ. Always. So it's always like Jesus sees you here and you're, and you're robbing yourself. You're being stolen from. You know, you're, you're, you're losing life. And Jesus goes, I want you to have maximum life. And so repent. Repent from that. Turn from that and come here and find life. So when Jesus calls us to repent, it's always an invitation back into the fullness of life in Christ. And this is what he says to these other six churches. He says, repent. Repent. What do we need to repent from? Well, we need to repent from relying on our own resources. Thank you, Jesus, for the money that we have in our pockets, but forgive us, Jesus, for relying on it. Forgive us, Jesus, for forgetting that you're the one who gave it to us to begin with. See, we need to repent from relying on our own resources. We need to repent from tolerating sin that should be lovingly confronted. We need to repent from thinking that because we're busy, we're successful. We need to repent from thinking that our success must mean that we're correct. Because it doesn't. We need to repent from thinking that Jesus wants us to be comfortable. Sometimes Jesus calls us to be uncomfortable. But have you ever noticed how we make decisions based on comfort level? If it's uncomfortable, it must not be God. <laughs> how do you know? See, we need to repent from thinking that Jesus wants us to be comfortable. 
And then I ask this question of us. Is there anything else we need to repent from? As we sit before the Lord, is there anything that we need to repent from, Jesus? So let's just pray as we close this morning. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.